and welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Woodbeck. Welcome back to Fracture Line. We're going to talk a little bit today. Well, let's see. Hold on. Well, first of all, we got Dr. Everett Erickson with us. We got Adam K. We got Zach. I got an itch. I need to scratch Bauman. Captain Ron is, of course, joining us today. Elsa's joining us today because she's frozen and T-Dub. The whole crew. So we wanted to talk uh, first off about length of stay as an endpoint and what each of us really think about that endpoint. And I, I think there's going to be some consensus by the end of the call here. But Adam Kay, you, you sent us some interesting papers. Why don't you start us off here? What do you think about length of stay as an endpoint? We've had uh, uh, off, offline conversations for a bit now discussing the different papers that we've been seeing presented in, in different um, venues. And the question we, we brought up was, when did this length of stay thing actually start? I and mean, what's the purpose of it? I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you are looking at the money aspect of it. And, you know, we always talk about EMR being the purpose of EMR, not being medical care, but more just how to bill. Um, and so you got the idea here, length of stay is more or less the same thing. It's just like how long you keep this person in the hospital and how much does the hospital lose because you're only getting a certain amount of dollars per, per you know, diagnosis related code. So I feel that length of stay is really a, a bad marker for most of, of what we do. Every hospital I've worked in has been different. I had a hospital where, you know, it didn't matter how sick you were, you went to the ICU post-op, even a lab coli went to the ICU because it was that type of hospital. Then you've got other hospitals where you get your, your colon removed and you go home the same day. So I just don't understand why length of stay is, is, has been, been, been this major thing that everyone looks at and it's always a, uh, a, 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 first, a first order information data point that everyone needs to get. So that's what I brought it up. That's why I wanted us to talk about it and see what people have to think about it. Well, I think it's a surrogate for quality, um, not a good one, but that's, I think that's the role it plays in studies. But for a host of reasons, it's terrible for that. I think the biggest issue is that when you look at length of stay, operative versus non-operative, it's not um, an apples to apples comparison. You have to have something that you're comparing it to. And what I mean by that is you need a metric, like a predicted length of stay. So the problem is like, look at this. If, if we have a patient that comes in, and I'm like, you're a candidate for rib fixation, but the patient's like, well, I want to wait a couple of days and see how I do. And then on day three, they're like, well, I want surgery. Now you're not getting them into the operating room until day four. But on day three, if they feel great and they're like, well, I just want to go home, you're going to discharge them home. So you've already lost like maybe two days because that patient decided that they weren't doing very well. They were having a lot of issues. They wanted to go to surgery. In the study that we just did here at um, Nebraska Medicine, we were comparing our length of stay to the Vizient predicted length of stay. And so what we were finding was that, yes, our rib fracture patients actually were in the hospital longer than the patients that we did not operate on, but they were actually in the hospital shorter length of stay than what Vizient was predicting because those patients that we were operating on actually were, in all intents and purposes, sicker at baseline. They had more uh, more injuries more rib fractures, they were just, uh, they had more comorbidities. So they actually got a longer length of stay by busy and standards. And we were actually were getting them out of here sooner, but they were still longer than what the non-operative patients were. So I think that that's why length of stay, in my opinion, isn't a great marker. Just so I'm clear, did you just disclose your scientific abstract? So we all now don't need to sit through your presentation at the summit? No. <laughs> That was just, that was published in JTAX. That oh, was that was I the old one. Oh, okay. Year. I couldn't that remember was... which one that was. And I just <laughs> wanted to be certain that we were all still maintaining the blind, you know, the the blind nature of it. Fantastic. Adam, I didn't get a chance to read your paper this morning, but is there a literature uh, out there that, that uh, attacks length of stay? Have people done studies looking at its utility so the papers that i saw they, they they weren't they weren't trauma papers and i think that's another big important aspect of this um they were specifically talking about um specific surgeries actually a lot of transplant surgeries um and they commented that it wasn't a, a good predictor of actual care is what, what they what was when they came out of it i'll let captain ron talk and i want to say something else afterwards yeah, I mean, so I, I agree with Adam that a lot of this stuff is historical, and to Zach's point, a lot about is about financial, but I don't think it addresses one of the patient concerns, which is what's the difference in my outcome? 
And, you know, Everett, for example, in South Carolina, he doesn't really have rehab places. And we run into issues with discharge. So we have, I'm, I'm, I'm at work, I'm at work right now. So I have, we have these green dots that go in the computer when people are set for discharge. So I'm just going to read you the number of days people have had their green dots in. 14, oh, 143 days one guy has had his dot in for. Another guy's had it in for five days, five days, 21 hours, uh, 83 days. So these are people that have had discharge orders in for 83 days. Is that really a fair length of stay? And you know, I think the other piece is where are they going? You know, are they going home? Because a lot of people get discharged earlier when they go home and it's a lot better for them to go home than sit in the hospital and rehab. So I do think there are some potentially other really important markers that we're missing out on, yet we look at length of stay. Same, same flip side. I'm struggling to believe what you just told me. I know what you told me is true, but how on earth can a patient sit in a hospital for 83 days? Because in, in our world, they don't have insurance. A rehab yeah. won't accept them. They don't have capability and functionality to go home. One of these guys has a um, enor enormous financial status that his family will not pay for him to go privately. And so they sit in the hospital. So there's a whole bunch of social barriers that exist with this stuff. Um, and it, we have those issues too. I mean, a week, two, two and a half, but 83 days is three months. So how does your hospital afford to stay open by giving this subsidized care? They, isn't the guy well? Yeah. Can he, is, is, how about showing him where the elevator is? If, if he's 83 days, <laughs> show him where the door is. I don't, I really just, I'm just struggling to understand that concept of keeping someone in the hospital that long. Sorry. So we're a Catholic hospital and we have a commitment to that. I see. Catholics are more generous <laughs> yes. than everybody see. else. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to get should have just said that. You should have just, just started with that. We have a guy that is in our hospital. He wasn't a rib fracture. He was a head injury patient. But this coming Cinco de Mayo will be his two-year anniversary. That just wouldn't happen where we are. That, that can't happen. That's I mean, we would get the insurance. We would get the it also defies the odds. If any of us spent two years in the hospital, we would die of something. We would get we would get taken to the operating room for an operation that we didn't want. We would get an infection that we couldn't control. So the hospital is no place to spend two years. So longer length this day shows good care. I think he just right. likes Dr. Bauman. He just wants to hang out. At this point, you may as well just let him move into your basement, man, because you're buddies. We basically turned his room into like a nursing home. Oh and it's like goodness. we see him like once a, once a week. And it's like it's 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 really sad. But like I'll be honest with you, he is not um, here uh, in the United States in the best way possible, and uh, doesn't have anybody to take him. And he does not. He from a from a mentality standpoint, he can't go anywhere because he is not safe to be discharged, and no one will take him. No one will take him because he's too high functioning, but not high functioning enough. He's right that like. I have had, it's, I, it's, I, I don't know if this is a, a rumor or not, but I am almost positive my hospital when I was a resident bought someone insurance just to get. He's got insurance now. So, you know, that way they got him out of our hospital someplace else and they, they're paying the insurance on him, but that's a lot cheaper than what they has to do for in the hospital. My hospital as a resident used to buy, buy hotel rooms. They would fly people. They'd put them on planes and fly them to foreign countries. I mean, I, I'm not saying that I'm not saying any of this stuff, but again, well, just, Florida does that. Just so, I mean, going back, just going back to the discussion, it. though, that maybe length of stay is not an appropriate thing. On the same token, ICU length of stay. We also have backlogs in our hospital. I don't know if you guys are in this position too, where you don't have floor beds, where people have discharge orders out of the ICU and they wait 24, 36 hours again, may not necessarily be a good marker of their care because they might not have needed that bed for 36 hours. Two more things with that. So one is, I think, as I say, can be used in elective operations because theoretically patients come in, they're healthy, they should be healthy. You're doing a set operation on this patient and you'll see how well they do. 
trauma, again, you have multiple injuries. You have no idea what exactly all the injuries are. Even though they may have the same ISS score, it may not be truly the same person. And, and just too many variables associated with that. So that's, that's, that's the first thing. What do you guys think of that? The paper you sent from that Narula was on uh, from earlier in the 2000s, that's exactly what they wrote in their paper. Too many social factors shouldn't be used as a, as a marker of quality for trauma patients. That's what exactly what their paper talked about. But yet, we are still seeing every day papers talking about specifically rib fixation and length of stay. Why? It makes no sense. It, it should never be used in my mind. It makes no sense to me. Because of too many social factors, barriers to care. Do you not even get them to the OR in 72 hours half the time? I mean, some of us do, but you know, sometimes we can't. So I think we should throw it out. I want to hear from Dr. Erickson, our guest, our um, illustrious guest today. We have a guest? I'm the guest. So, you know, what I would say is I, I only halfway agree with you there, Dr. K. Elective surgery can be used as a marker within the same institution, within the same barriers to discharge, assuming that you've got equal insurance statuses and ability for discharge across your two groups. And that's one thing that people rarely look at is, is the insurance status the same across the, both of the groups when they start comparing length of stay? And if you've got a skew one way or the other, even in your elective cases, you're going to have longer lengths of stay in one case, one group versus the other. We have terrible rehab access down here in South Carolina. And I can bring in a guy insured who has a couple complications after a big abdominal wall reconstruction. I may not be able to place him into rehab based on social uh, constraints. The larger issue is when you start bringing in multi-institutional studies and looking at length of stay. Because we've now seen among the six practitioners on this call, everybody's got different barriers to discharge and different hospitals handle this differently. And if you start putting all of our data together and trying to compare length of stay where you have disproportionate numbers of patients from each center, you're gonna skew your data and introduce a lot of bias into your outcome. There's your statistical nerd. I concur. I agree 100% with what you just said. Here's my question. We have a, a relatively small group of like-minded, passionate researchers slash clinicians who are looking at the same studies, we're thinking about the same issues, can we agree collectively, Here's um, this is the first of several questions, that length of stay um, in general is not a good endpoint and we should stop using it, or we should certainly qualify it or describe it as a weakness in a paper if we encounter it or we use it, or do we need to do some studies and research to solidify that bias or can we just move forward with that bias and treat it as if it's real and just change you know just henceforth and forthwith you know sound the gong every time somebody touts length of stay at a meeting or in a paper that we're associated with that's my question i think we should study it in terms of it being a poor marker of quality how to design that, I think we have the power even amongst this group. I think that we should prove to people that it's specific to chest wall reconstruction and trauma patients. Length of stay is irrelevant, and I think there's a way to do that. Um, and that's kind of what I would like to talk about. Do we think as a, as a collective that ICU length of stay is a poor marker as well? Definitely more valid. Well, I used to think that, but then after listening to what Adam was saying about you know, these polytrauma patients and stuff like that, you know, is it truly their ribs that are keeping them in the ICU? Well, well that's the thing. You have to, you have to more or less separate your, your patients out to a solely chest wall injury only patient versus a non, versus a multi-trauma patient. That's one way to at least try to tease that out. Also, you know, like as, uh, as um, Andy has, you know, you have that little sign, you know, when the patient was supposed to go out of the ICU. Right. So just it's, it's a little bit more work on you can't just use a simple um, spreadsheet. But if you know that on day X, patient was deemed ready to go out of the ICU, but it took three days for there to be a bed opened up. You can still use day X as your day of, of his, his ICU at the stay instead of X plus three. But you have to like definitely have to write that in your paper that, you know, it, this is what it was. And this is the, this is what the observed. This is what the actual is, more or less. That might be worthwhile. And I think ICU is okay. And I think also it has to do with um, 
days after the after it's repaired, as opposed to the entire icing of this day. Because again, if a person lies there for two or three days because they're too sick, and you don't feel that they really need a, a, a you know, semi-urgent operation, that's when, that's when you may actually increase your overall ISO of the state, but all of a sudden, after the surgery, they're gone in a day, they look so amazing. So I think you have to look at it as post-op ISO of the state as opposed to entire ISO of the state. Then it becomes really hard to compare though, because you don't have a, so we're your starting point in the non-operative patients. And so just to kind of throw this out there, let's hypothetically say we throw out length of stay as a quality metric. We we think it's not valuable. ICU length of stay has its biases and its problems. What other metrics do we have or what other metrics can we use? Because we don't really have the rib qual study still isn't finished where we have truly have a chest wall specific quality indicator of outcome. So I would argue that while it's less than ideal, it's one of the few metrics that we have. And yes, there's bias with it, and yes, there's there's a lot of variability, but what else do we have? So I think if we're gonna say we're gonna throw that out, which is valid, I think we have to say, what are we gonna use instead? I don't necessarily think that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think that length of stay is um, necessarily a bad marker, but you, gotta, you can't compare non-operative to operative patients. I think you have to compare that to what is your observed versus your, or your expected versus your observed? Like in these, with these, you know, Medicare, Medicaid has their own calculators. Vizient now has their own calculators. They're calculating it based off of a lot of different factors. And yeah, they're not perfect calculators, you know, but they're calculating based off your comorbidities, based off your injury patterns, everything that you have. And so they're giving you like, this patient should be in the hospital for 10.2 days. And if you're getting them out in eight days after doing rib fixation, I think that, you know, you, you've won the battle, but if they're staying two extra days, then they're supposed to, you know, in a, in a non-operative group, then you're not winning that battle. So I don't necessarily think that we have to throw length of stay out. It's just, what are we comparing length of stay to? And I don't think that comparing it rib fixation versus not rib fixation, comparing those two patient populations is the ideal world. But then you have the problem with, you know, dispo again. So even if, yeah, you know, you do. Even if you have that idea, you still are are screwed by the other aspect. Yeah, you still have to observe a length of stay, and that length of stay is subject to all the things we just talked about. So, and, and then you know, our biggest problem truly is is that humans are not homogeneous. It's just such a hetero, heterogeneous um, population. You have one person. I had a guy who his entire right chest was completely cr crushed. And he didn't want any surgery because his left side was crushed three years ago and he felt fine and he walked out of the hospital in two days. I would have fixed him right away. And the only person who has two rib fractures and they're in the hospital forever because the pain is so severe. So it, it's just, it, it's so it's so frustrating to try to figure out what's, what's good and what's not good. I'll tell you a couple other things though, talking about different hospitals and multi-institutional um, situations. ICU, return to ICU in TQIP kills me because I don't have a... I don't have a step-down unit. I don't have any place to put my guy who goes into AFib. I, I'm like, I'm like questioning: Should I go to? A, should I bring him in or not? Can I try to tr treat him in on the floor because I don't want to have a, a another ding for the return to ICU? When if you go to you know Penn or assuming intercontinental, um, they're they're gonna have no problem with it. Um, they'll have a step-down unit and they'll have more than enough problems and they won't be dinging for the ICU return. But your ICU return helps my data. So I can't, I can't be that sympathetic for you, Adam. That's the, that's what's so stupid about those metrics. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, MME is stupid, truthfully, if you think about it, because no one does pain management the same way anymore. No, we were talking about this paper that was just came out in OTA, and um, we'll talk about more, I'm sure, in the future. Um, but they were using MME as their guide proof that there was no difference between operative and non-operative treatment of flail chest, and. We're talking to ourselves, you know, with, with cryoablation, gabapentin, muscle relaxants, uh, ketamine. All of a sudden, all of our patients are not using as much narcotics as they did in the past. But we have no idea what the protocol they had in those hospitals were. So we have no idea whether they actually helped them at all or not, and whether they just threw lots and lots of drugs on them. The people who were intubated were the most treated with, uh, with, with narcotics because that was their sedation. Of course they had the most narcotics. So just, ugh, there's no good metric. Yeah. If you could choose or construct the ideal metric, what would it be? Function. Let me throw a few out there. Percent of predicted restoration of vital capacity, the, the return to work time period, or their functionality at one year or two years. 
what would be the the definitive in your mind? What would be the definitive endpoint to to help you determine whether or not operating on this group of patients was better than not operating on them? PROMs. That's pretty broad. Which PROM? I mean, I think it's satisfaction, quality of life, and function, overall function. And I don't think vital capacity necessarily make is the same as overall function. I don't think pulmonary function is the same as overall function because you know you are going to care about your vital capacity because you're a fit athlete who exercises a lot you know um everett is going to care about his vital capacity to be able to get the 12 ounces back up to his lips but either one of you who can't (laughs) either one of you who can't actually do what you want to do is going to have a negative outcome regardless of what that is if you don't, if it's not up to your standard, and that's sort of the, where the outcome measures matter is, did you meet your own standard? How close are you to your pre-injury baseline is really what most of the PROMs are based around. I could not agree more. I hate to say it, but I could not agree more. I, I think I completely agree, and that's kind of what I'm, the only thing I'm talking about at the summit this year is, I think that function as a marker for success is the utmost importance and that you can put a PROM in there too if you want you know you can do a patient reported outcome as part of your functional assessment too but function for me is what matters the most I do not give a shit how long somebody stays in my hospital I don't I don't care what their FEC is really I care that if they were an independent 90 year old at baseline that they're close to that after the operation true or false we have to have a comparative non-operative group for those studies to be meaningful. But we don't because of the biases we fix them. But we can still see how right. they do. So I don't know if that's true, Mark. And Tom, the answer is true. In order long-term for people to really be accepting of what surgery has to offer, then you have to have a non-operative comparison. So we all have, most of us anyway, have patients that uh, have embraced us. They've We've developed a relationship with them. They've if they send us Christmas cards, they write it, you know, they, they, they send us patients, that sort of thing. We all have those, but those are our operative patients. I can't name a single patient that I didn't operate on that still I have a relationship with after a few weeks. It just doesn't happen anymore. How do we collect and maintain the comparator group long term so that we can use them as valid comparators? Are you not nice to your non-operative patients in the clinic, Tom? Why do they hate you? Because I give them a big bear hug and it hurts like hell because I didn't fix them. And they don't want to come back. No, I don't know. Am I am I the only one that doesn't know who their non-operative patients are? I don't know any of them. Yes, no, I don't yes know Tom, you are. <laughs> I, I don't know who they are. I, I follow my non-operative patients quite a bit longer than I think a lot of the other guys do. So I do get some of that further follow-up data on them. Um, but it's a, but it's a good, but how many of them are survived flail chest or multiple displaced fractures? The kind of patients you fix now automatically, how many of those non-ops have that bad pathology? None of them, none of them anymore. And that's the problem with what you're saying is we don't have a equal comparator group to actually look at that kind of data on. We really need some non- operative centers or minimally operative centers to join more operative centers to get that ultimate outcome data. But then it's still going to be skewed by all the stuff we talked about before. And I think we really need to get, if we want to use length of stay, we've got to get creative in how we look at it statistically in that maybe you can only compare patients who went home in length of stay and compare patients who went to rehab with length of stay and allow for insurance to work its way into that as well. Because that's the only way you can really compare apples to apples in length of stay or discharge location. And Captain Ron is wrong about one thing. There's 16 ounces in my drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I forgot to calculate for the fact that you drink tall boys. Um, So, uh, I mean, I agree with Everett. I follow a bunch of non-operative patients too pretty long you know i don't know how many of you guys have been involved in the rib qual study but those involve non-operative patients but it is difficult to get those patients in follow-up and to have them keep and to have them keep doing things you know and part of the problem is that we're also biased like i 
I've seen three people this week that were non-operative patients at other centers who've had poor outcomes who are seeking me out now for help too. So we're super biased in this group by who we have. Um, sorry, I'm really distracted. I think we need to again address Sarah's salary. She is wearing gloves in her house. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we need to all pitch in. Everybody who's listening to this needs to pitch in. We're going to buy Sarah a new portable space heater. I cannot use my space heater during the recording because Dr. Hansen gets frustrated. But these, you guys, are special Reynolds gloves because they are heated. I love them. Why don't you just turn the heat on in your house? Well, the heat's on. I don't ever turn so it below 75, warm. Dr. Crisco. That would be foolish. <laughs> 75. 75. I, you scoff as if you turn your house lower than that. What do you, not like your children? That's rude. I'm at uh, 60 right now, Sarah. 60. You aren't kidding. Right, so here's the other question. So if you if you deal with kids um, in high school or, um, or college um, and, and uh, concussions, you know, they... They, they, they try to actually have them have a baseline of their mental status prior to their possible concussion or injury. And, this, and they, they want to see whether they can return to their baseline. I think it may be interesting. Um, there's got to be some, and we take, operate on a lot of old people, um, that maybe we'll have some people who actually have some sort of a baseline that we know of from there and, and see how they do. My biggest concern about PROM and all these other quality assessments that, that Dr. Krisko is doing is, you know, if you look at the, the end result, if you ask for a, a, um, a quality of life study, you know, six months out after rib fracture repair, more or less the two, two groups um, collide, right? They, they more or less go back to the same level. Um, because it, that's, at least, well, let me change that. With the questions that we are asking, that's how they end up. Even though I agree, I do the operation, and I think that it is so much better for these people. But a lot, a lot of the, at least the current quality of life studies that we have out there, the questions that are being asked are not the right questions. Maybe this is a better question. It's more the physical part to look at instead of the, the usual questions asked on a quality of life study. I'm not sure what those questions are. But that's my, always my biggest issue with the quality of life studies is that we're not using the right questions. And once you get the right questions, we'll have proof that it, we're doing the right thing for people. So maybe what you're saying is actually where we should go. And, you know, Tom, you shook your head about the six-month thing. And, and actually, I don't necessarily disagree with that in the more minorly injured people. So at six months, the people that are minorly injured probably do have very similar outcomes. The thing is, I mean, you and I had a conversation today. Like, the two of us can't lay on the couch for a week, never mind six months, right? So for, for some people, just being able to get back quickly is a difference. I actually thought about your comment, um, Adam, and I was thinking that Mark and I know a person that owns one of these bike parks where people crash all the time. It's a big contributor to Mark's work. And we could get all these people when they buy their tickets to fill out quality of life baseline. Tom could go to Snowbird, Tom could go to Snowbird and uh, get everybody who buys a ticket to fill something out because, you know, the percentage of those people. They get a $10 like, discount if they'll fill out this form. form. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and try and get baseline off of some of these people because that's the problem with injuries is you just don't have baselines on them. State of Utah would appreciate that. I think those are excellent points, and I think that's right, Adam. The lesser injured patients, uh, the ones whose ribs were going to heal anyway, uh, but it would just take longer to do so. At six or twelve months, it's hard to prove a big difference between their outcomes. The more massively injured patients, the ones we nowadays are extremely reluctant to treat non-operatively. There just aren't very many of them because they get fixed anymore. I think that's where the 12 month and 18 month and two year curves are going to, you know, are going to reflect the, you know, the, the, the uh, efficacy of rib fracture repair, but, uh, but establishing that those groups and getting adequate numbers of those groups to prove that is, as has proven to be challenging and will continue to do so, I think. Yeah. It will have a survivor bias. These people aren't going to live that long if we, if we don't fix them sometimes. So how would you design a study to disprove length of stay as a marker for quality? Would you choose what is a better marker for quality and show that SSRF, you know, in terms of function or PROMs or something, you know, has a positive influence in that arena, but their length of stay is longer? Because I think that's true, right? I mean, I think we all agree that our length of stay is 
probably longer in our operative patients for good reason. Well, the um, one thing we do have on all of our trauma patients is correlation. So logic yeah. would suggest that ISS should correlate with lengths of stay, that, that there should be a positive correlation there. If we went back and looked at the ISS in these rib studies and compared it to length of stay and showed that there was no, there was no correlation, that would be a start. That would be, that would be some fuel that would suggest that length of stay is not related to severity of injury. Yeah, or more importantly for us, I mean, especially because of what was just, you know, has been reported several times is length of stay in our operative arm is not, it doesn't correlate to the success or, or the, or the quality of the operation. So I think that we have to design something that would prove that there are whatever quality assessment we're doing is positively influenced by the case. However, length of stay is all over the map and it, it is, it's going to be all over the map. You know, a lot of our patients do things like t say to us, I can't imagine not having this done. Right. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what would have happened if I didn't have this done. I feel so much better. Thank you. Quote unquote, you saved my life. All of these things. What about if you just looked at, if you just asked patients in the office at two weeks, are you glad you had this done for the patients that had it done and the ones that didn't have it done who were offered, do you wish you had had this done, had that operation done and then just correlate their length of stay because if their length of yeah. stay is even longer but patients are like god i can't imagine not having this done i mean I, again they don't have crystal balls we don't have crystal balls but just a super simple question like that might actually be kind of interesting i don't think it's been done before yeah i think that's a really interesting question randy and that would be a pretty easy one to do um, yeah, Mark, I, th I think the challenge with your question is what is the better endpoint? And I don't know that we have one. I think the key. I, yeah, <laughs> I agree. But, but maybe Captain's Ron endpoint is the better one is just the patient saying to you, yes, I am so glad I had this done. Thank God I had it done. And then we just show that that arm that had it done had a significantly higher length of stay because guess what? They were operated on. But man, are they happy. <laughs> we did this. We published this concept years ago, Sarah Majersik and et al. And we asked patients. We had one of our medical students call every patient and ask them the, the satisfaction question. Were you glad you had the operation done? I don't have uh, the results at my fingertip, but it was something. It was, it was very positive. 87% or 93% said, yeah. yes, I'm glad I did it. It was very positive because we quoted it in our recent paper. Yeah, it can be done. It's not It's not a study that can't be done. Um, but um, it, the timing of that is interesting. Is someone more enamored with an operation at two weeks or at six months or at a year? When's the best time to ask them that question? But did you have the non-operative comparators? We did not. The problem is the, the non-operative patients never know what they're missing by getting surgery. There's an easy study out there, which would be for all of us to compare to each other our length of stay and get a comparator of insurance status and rehab availability and everything else. And that may show huge variability among centers that do do a lot of plating. And my length of stay may be twice what it is in Nebraska or three times what it is at Intermountain, because apparently it's easy to get people into rehab there, and who knows what's going on with the Catholics, but. Well, we're more compassionate. That's a super interesting question, Everett, but what about if we compared it to ourselves? Because our hospitals should be able to know what percentage of patients are, are the, the payment, the payer mix, what percentage of patients end up in rehab versus others? And then when we reported that, we would report not just our outcomes, but our overall hospital outcome in comparison as well. So let's say, for example, in my rib fixation group, my hospital length of stay is eight days. I discharge 40% of people to rehab. 
and I have a 60% private payer mix of my patients, okay? For, for, my, for my chest wall injured patients. But then I also report my hospital data. My hospital data is 50% of my payer mix is private insurance. In general, we discharge 80% of patients to rehab versus home. So we have a baseline for our hospital too, because that way when we compare centers, we can compare what their baseline across all DRGs is to kind of know what our mix is to kind of be able to not just compare ourselves and not just compare our rib patients, but also compare the hospitals themselves in a sense. But one of the major causes of trauma is not having insurance. Yes, but mm. that should be true across each of our centers to some extent at a, roughly the same rate. I agree with you, Adam, but that's roughly true with the exception of some state-based insurances. Right. The rates are all changed based on who did Medicare expansion and who didn't through Obamacare. Those of us who are non-expansion states are going to have a way higher number of uninsured patients than the rest of y'all. But, but also from the hospital the hospital as well as our our fixed patients that's my point we we sort of have we can basically set ourselves as a marker against our against all drgs basically is what i'm saying it it sounds to me like we need a CWIS summit breakout session regarding length of stay as a outcome quality metric i don't know so <laughs> I like Everett's idea only because, you know, while we can assume that we're all centers with decent quality out in terms in, in term of decent outcomes for our rib fixation patients. And then what we can show is that we can prove the fact that your length of stay and my length of stay and Captain Ron's and Zach, like everybody's is so wildly different, but we can somewhat assume that our quality is alike. We'd have to have some sort of way to, you know, prove that, but, but that would disprove length of stay in my mind pretty well. All of us as centers of excellence have radically different length of stays with our operations. So interestingly, um, on the um, T-Rex call, there were several markers where people functioned very similarly. Those markers also happen to be in SID. And they're pretty easy numbers for us to pull. Length of stay, amount of time per plate placed, length of chest tube duration. There's a couple of markers that kind of go along. Use of plural irrigation, plural space management. I think there are several things that we could use as markers to say that we're doing things fairly similarly. I was actually shocked by some of that data because when we did non-flail, there was a huge variety before we instituted non-flail, which is why we actually did some of the protocolization. But I think that's gone by the wayside at a lot of these, at, certainly within the collaborative centers mix. I would agree. How many of you can recall taking care of a patient who had a previous chest wall injury and then you fixed their second episode and they had an old episode and a new episode to compare, which I can think of two or three in my experience that I could probably find. Um, raise your hand if you remember a patient like that. So what if we, uh, is, would that be an interesting group to study? Design a questionnaire of their experience before and their experience with SSRF. Yeah, that would be interesting. So I had a super interesting thing not too long ago where... Um, a family member had fallen off of a ladder and had a terrible injury and they got fixed and the other and another family member fell off of the ladder and didn't want surgery and then that family the member <laughs> basically talked him into it and i've had several of those Everett and I had one where a guy was discharged and he said, hey, what happened to my buddy in the ICU? And like, he's still in the ICU. And he went by on discharge and convinced him to have surgery like five days later. 
I mean, there are these stories out there. I wonder if we can't figure out a way or to find family members that had something done or something like that. Or have you heard about this from somebody? Do we think it's possible? Because, you know, I was just thinking, like, do we need some type of calculator centered around rib fractures, chest wall injury? But then I was thinking, well, you know, um, uh, Joe Forrester and company out of Stanford created the uh, uh, rib fracture uh, frailty index calculator, which actually tells you if you're over the age of 65 with rib fractures, it kind of predicts if you're if you're going to be in the hospital for longer than five days, um, it gives you a, a prediction, actually a pretty, uh, pretty decent prediction. Um, are we able to leverage something like that to create a calculator and then put it against um, operative and non-operative patients can, trying to consider what other um, comorbidities and other injuries they have? I don't know. It seems like we have some pretty smart people in this organization. Yeah, the, rib fra- the flailty index predicts, for, predicts your... Um your risk of a complication primarily. I guess I think late to stay as well. But uh, that's something we should ask Jeff Choi about. I mean, that yeah. guy, nobody's smarter than that guy designing that kind of study, but maybe that maybe there's something there. So so hold on, we're, we're talking to the wrong people. Miss, I just realized this. We're talking to each other who are surgeons who may or may not have had rib fractures in the past. We need to grab a handful of operative and non-operative patients and sit them down and ask them how was your recovery what surprised you about your recovery what was the biggest challenges in your recovery and that'll tell us the quality of life markers we need to chase down town halls we've got to have town halls yep yeah good point Everett. but to zach's point though i mean especially now with the coding of fractures the way they are done in the ICD-10 coding, which is starting to show up in TQIP. I mean, we should be able to predict based on somebody's ISS, their comorbidities, and the number of fractures, we should be able to predict their length of stay. That should not be a hard thing to do. I mean, we have so much data on that. We are actually starting to get data on, a lot of data on the fixation too, because we can break that up at least by the CPT codes of of less than three, three to six, and seven or more, same thing. We should also be able to predict what that data suggests. And yes, it's not going to be great. It's going to vary center to center, location to location, but it's going to give you, I mean, that's how Vizient gets those numbers, Zach. I mean, they're, they're just doing predictive models. Yeah, no, it is. It's it, That's absolutely what they're doing. It's just predictive based off of your comorbidities and your injuries and your – actually, I think they, they even take into account your insurance companies, like in their case mix index. I think it does take into account, like, do you have insurance or do you not? I don't, it's it's a pretty complex calculator. I don't claim to know it that well, but – Can you can you hire, can you enlist Vizient to do a data analysis for you? I mean, they are a private organization. I'm sure if you pay them money, they'll do something for you. Well, see what's is loaded. <laughs> Elsa. That's what I always say. I always say <laughs> we're a notable cash cow, so. Our endowment is like Harvard's side by Fascinating now. discussion. And um, obviously, we're going to carry this over to the summit. We do, in fact, have one of our breakout sessions uh, focusing on this kind of research. So uh, congratulations. Should we move on? To be clear, we have multiple sessions. I know that at least four or five of them are predicated on research projects. Then we have a handful of them that are predicated on creating, you know, sort of documentation for the society of, of this is how we do what we do, or this is why we do what we do, etc. kinds of things. So imagine to yourself, if I'm going to participate in a work group and there may or may not be, you know, a work product at the end, what am I most interested in? Am I most interested in being part of you know, the production of some sort of document or and or information or educational tool, or am I more interested in, you know, getting on the ground floor of designing a research project and, and that'll help guide your feet when we get to the work group part. So more to come on that angle. And so excited that we've had this good kickstart to our initial or the initial one that we discussed about why we don't think we need this length of stay anymore, this length of the stay um, metric anymore. So thanks, guys. Superb. Uh, Elsa, what else do you have for updates from the Society this week? 
think the first um, Wednesday in February, we're very close to confirming the presenter for that day. So I think we'll have a journal club announcement to make very soon. The other item to put on your calendar, if you are in Florida or you want to be in Florida um, on Saturday, March 2nd, March 3rd, I can't remember which day now. Either way, it's that Saturday. CWIS is hosting a regional meeting, which is designed to be kind of an interesting and informative day-long meeting from seven to three, something like that, for those within um, South Florida. Please put that on your calendar, plan to join us. It should be a good time. And even if you're not in the area, but you wish you were because it's cold, hence the name, um, feel free, let me know. SoFlo. 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 SoFlo, Southern Florida. So it's gonna be a good event. So those are some of the things we have coming wow. up. Did T-Dub come up with SoFlo himself? Unfortunately, yes, and it has stuck. And because it has, we are still using it, but... Nice. He's pretty proud of that. I can see he's proud of that. Yes. Between NoFlow <laughs> and NoFo and SoFlow, I, I think he feels like he's really landed that plane. So we're still using it. There's a tremendous area right there called the Hallover Inlet. It has some of the roughest water there is. And there's actually a video that they literally just show boats and people getting stuffed by the water every day. It's, a, it's like, it, it, I mean, it's total entertainment to watch people sink boats. I can watch Hallover for hours. Yeah, Dan, me bro. too. I so love if you guys are down there, make sure you stop at Hallover. Just get up on the jetty and just, and just watch these people getting stuffed. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to Google this. I have not heard of such a thing. Hallover Inlet. You'll see it. There's, there's episodes all the time. It's great. I can't believe this flow flow thing just went right past you people. Like it's, I mean, you're, you're, there's never a shortage of shots at me and my age and, and my, you know, prostate. I can't believe that that just went right over. I'm not sure how we went from that to your prostate, but thanks for that. Yeah. Now it's, it's Thursday. It's 2024. We're, we're trying to turn over a new leaf here yeah. in the, in the cast. Yeah. Man. Yeah. We're being nice. I thought it was a, a great name. I got nothing else, yeah. nothing bad to say about it. There you go. <laughs> All, right. All right, let's finish this up. Who's got a final stitch? I do. I'm so sorry for you guys that were that are live and die with the Cowboys. It's just tragic. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll have a new coach next year and probably a new quarterback, and maybe maybe things will change. Good luck. I'm sorry. Did the Denver Broncos make it past like week 11? So. You just shut your mouth when you're talking to me. Thank you very little. Son of a beanet mother, Frito Tom. That's exactly. <laughs> Tom, that was awesome. Zach, I got an itch. I need to scratch. Come on. Yes, you, you guys. Go I got this. So, like, January was really kind of just weighing heavy on me. I was trying to do dry January. And then I realized You that, realized it's um, only the 18th, right? Like, so, I know you didn't make it very far. Then I realized that you can actually... Like dry January, you can get around it by borrowing other days from other months that you're going to not drink on and supplementing them in. So like tonight, I was going to go out to dinner uh, with some friends and have some drinks. And this is actually going to be February 13th for me tonight. And then like when February 13th rolls around in February, that's going to actually be my January 18th. Brilliant. That's that's absolutely January. brilliant. Ooh, like, nailed it. <laughs> Oh, man. So, you know, borrowing, you're borrowing days and you're just making it dry. So happy February 13th, everybody. That's what it is for me. <laughs> Semi-arid January. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Way to commit. Way to commit, buddy. Oh, uh, Captain Ron, you got anything on your mind? Yeah, mine, mine's uh, personal again. It's family related. Uh, my 17 year old, as you guys know, is a big competitive runner. He's trying to figure out college. And um, one of the things that we struggle with is internal motivation. And uh, in the last couple weeks, I don't know what happened. He is seeing a great girl who's also super fast. So maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But he's had back-to-back -back PRs and back-to-back -back events in the last two 
races and he qualified for states in two of them and posted college D1 times in two of the events. And I'm just super, I'm super, super proud of him. That is fantastic. Wow, that's amazing. That's yeah, it's pretty awesome. Congratulations. Last, last night, he had some kid come up. He has not not really had a lot of competition in his division. He had some kid come up behind him last night. And it was like somebody hit the afterburner in him. It was just awesome to watch. It was so exciting. And, of course, my wife missed it, which I feel terrible for. But at least one of us got Now, is it long distance or does he do short track? Or I mean, I know he does long distance, but is this, which is this? This is indoor track. Oh, okay. So he does, um, he does the 55, which is a tough race because he really doesn't get to speed until it, but his best event is the middle distance, two, four hundreds, but in indoor, that's a 300. So he did a 300 last night and I think it was uh, 37 seconds, something like that. I mean, it was fast. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Ever, what's on your mind, Bob? Well, what's on my mind is probably what's um, causing Elsa so much angst. I am super excited to see all the snow coming down out west. It was a little bit of a slow start to the year, but now I'm seeing amazing reports everywhere. And I am ultra excited that I can live down here in the palm trees and come out to visit Elsa when I want to play in the snow. It is so true. We were so behind on our our water pickup as of like six weeks ago. And then in a matter of two weeks, we have completely caught up. It is insane. It has snowed every day. Just buckets in the past two weeks. You would be so happy. I can hardly wait for you to come enjoy it. Someone should enjoy it. So it should be you. We're all going to enjoy it. Everett, I'm definitely going to stay in ski, too, so we're going to hit it up. Yeah, me too, Chris. Go. Cool, man. Let's do it. All right, guys. Well, I will catch you all later. We got to run. It was a really fun uh, meeting. Good conversation. 